Well, yeah, so today I want to speak about the relationship between prayer, justice, and joy. And uh, I think we'll see a similar dynamic at work from, from last week. Now, prayer is never something that's done instead of action, but always in conjunction with action. Prayer is the fuel that propels the church and keeps the church on track and on mission and doing what we're meant to be doing. Uh, I used to manage teams of volunteer gap year students used to come to the church and do lots of different things, kids work and youth work and various bits and bobs. Many of those young people came to the church to work for us for, with a lot of willingness, but not much, uh, I suppose, passion for children's work. And that was fine, but obedience without enthusiasm runs dry pretty quick, and we had a lot of work to do, clubs to run and homes to visit and various bits and bobs. And so I'd always start the year by telling them, you care about the things that you pray for. If you pray for the children, if you pray for their families, if you pray for the groups that we're running, you will find that you care about them as well. And it happens that way around. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Or where your prayer is, you could say, there your heart will be also. Well, today we're going to read uh, one of the shortest sermons in history ever preached. And then we're going to share some observations about Jesus' words and Jesus' life. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 4. There's four Gospels, four stories about the life of Jesus that are told for different audiences, told in slightly different ways. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in the third one, which is Luke. And we're going to be reading Luke chapter 4. Okay, this is what it says. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives. And recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is God's word. These are familiar words to many of us, uh, but let's allow them to wash over us afresh. What do we notice? Well, we notice, first of all, that Jesus was in the habit of going to church every Sunday. Did you get that? Uh, Or every Saturday. As was his custom, it says, he went to the synagogue. Um, That means, basically, like he normally did, as he was in the habit of doing, And I don't know about you, but I I think that's pretty cool. When you come regularly every Sunday to meet with God's people, to sit under God's word, you're doing something that Jesus himself did regularly as well. And whoever said that you're not like Jesus? You are, in more ways than you realize. But from Luke's point of view, this was Jesus' first ever sermon. From our point of view, it wasn't a particularly good one. I mean, Jesus reads the Bible, sits back down without saying anything. And everyone's just staring at him, as you would. Where's the message? What are you going to say? He actually hadn't said anything. And then when Jesus does bring his message, it's only eight words long. There are no jokes. There's no illustrations. There's no props. Nothing to hold a modern audience. It's as though he's a little surprised that they actually need him to say something. He kind of reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Sits back down and waits as if it's obvious what the point of the sermon is. Sits in silence and stares at him. 
And then he eventually says, today, <laughs> today, those words have been fulfilled today. Now we mentioned there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The first two, Matthew and Mark, they begin their books about Jesus by having Jesus walk around to different towns and announce something. He, in every town that he goes, it says that Jesus entered that place saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, which basically means change the way that you're thinking. Stop thinking or stop living like that. Repent, change, get ready, because God's kingdom is here. God is on the throne. Are you ready? That was Jesus' message in Matthew and Mark. In Luke, it's very different. But you see, Matthew and Mark, they're writing for Jewish people, the Jewish audience, who are familiar with the Jewish book, the Old Testament. They're familiar with what words like kingdom of heaven mean to people. Luke, who's writing for people more like you and me, however, singles out Jesus' mini-sermon in a synagogue to explain what he's here to do. The two snapshots mean the same thing. You see, the kingdom of heaven essentially means God's rule and reign to bring... The kingdom of heaven, to say the kingdom is at hand, basically means God is here. It means peace is available. It means that justice is at hand. It means the poor will now be exalted. That's what the kingdom means for the, for the Jewish mind. Luke says that, and for Luke, because he's talking to people who aren't Jewish, he says it a bit more explicitly. He reads from the Isaiah the prophet and he says, listen, I've been sent here to announce freedom to captives, good news to the poor. They contain the same heart and essence. You see, God in the Bible has always told his people that he cares about the poor, that he's near to the brokenhearted, that he's passionate about justice, that he hates injustice. And the first sermon he has his son preach to the watching world basically confirms that. It says, Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place it was written. The scroll that Jesus got handed wasn't a Bible app with keyword searches that you could just find. Uh, justice, there it is, that'll do. Jesus didn't just type Isaiah 61 and up it popped. Instead, he opened it to a familiar place. He read familiar words, words that he knew where they were, knew how to find them. It's as though as a boy and as a young man, he'd spent many hour, many an hour poring over the scroll, seeing in it God's mission for the world, his mission for the world, understanding in these words his father's love for the poor, the broken, the enslaved, and then taking it all into his heart. You see, that's what the church has done ever since. Taken Jesus' message and mission and has tried to live it out. That's what we're supposed to do anyway. I was I made this point to someone recently. It's, it's quite intriguing to me as a church leader. I've been doing this for several years, and from time to time, people will come and tell me about things that we ought to be doing. Often, very good things. You know, we must make sure we're doing this. Must make sure we're going there. Must make sure we're preaching about that more, or we're not forgetting that particular teaching. All good things a lot of the time. But it's surprising to me that very rarely does someone ever come up to me and say, "You must not forget the poor. You must be doing more to release captives from from, from slavery." What are we doing about injustice? Very rarely, if ever, has anybody ever said that to me. Now, there might be good reasons for that, of course. It's a complex issue. We're grateful we live in a, in a country with a benefit system that's grown out of the, the roots of Christian teaching anyway. But still, you read the Bible on almost every chapter in the Old Testament. God says something about his passion for the poor, for the marginalized, for the broken. Pete Gregg, in his book, Dirty Glory, that we're giving away for free to every household. There's some at the back if you haven't had one yet. But he says this about the church and different Christians in history. William Carey, 
campaigned for women's rights. John Wesley launched the first lending banks for the poor. Robert Rakes and Hannah Moore pioneered free education for all. William Wilberforce fought slavery. Elizabeth Fry campaigned for prison reform. George Muller established orphanages. The 7th Earl of Shaftesbury fought child labour and the oppression of the mentally ill. Then in the 20th century... Amy Carmichael rescued orphans in India. Dr. Paul Brand pioneered reconstructive surgery for victims of leprosy. Dame Cicely Saunders established the hospice movement to care for the dying. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu fought apartheid and pioneered reconciliation in South Africa. He then says, all these great men and women understood the reality of sin... And they understood the fundamental necessity of personal salvation, getting right with God for yourself. And they understood those things alongside social transformation, he said. He then says this. This is the key bit. They are, these people, are therefore best understood, not as humanitarians or social reformers, but simply as ministers of the gospel. Just Christians trying to do what Jesus told us to do. Now, I don't know about you, but far from finding that list inspirational, I find it deeply challenging and slightly terrifying. Do I really know the God of the Bible if I don't care about the things he cares about? Since there's arrogance and apathy in my heart towards the poor, since I can easily walk past a person in need or turn a deaf ear to the cries of my neighbors, do I even know God? What can I do about those things? And that is where prayer starts. starts in a place of honesty. As first of all, seeing who we are before God. You see, as we draw near to God, near enough to God in prayer that he rubs off on us. That's what prayer is. We're changed. The author Philip Yancey says this. He says, prayer is the act of seeing reality from God's point of view. Partly the reason we find it hard to pray is because It opens our eyes to realities that we don't want to look at. When I pray, I'm talking to the God who hears the cries of all the millions of people in the world who are hurting and mistreated. I'm invited to see a reality in which 46 million people around the world are living in slavery. I talk to the one who knows intimately each of the 815 million people who will go to bed hungry tonight and who knows the struggles of each of the world's one billion people experiencing some form of disability. When I pray... I am forced to consider life outside of what my work can affect and my words can heal. When I pray, I'm confronted by the great need of the world and also by my inability to do anything about it. When I pray, truly pray, not just say my prayers, I mean when I pour my heart out to God, I'm forced into a position of humiliation and I understand my weaknesses properly. Questions that I have kept silent surface, old doubts re-emerge and things that are too complex for me to understand surround me and at times prayer is a source of comfort and peace but before it is that it's usually a place of anxiety and pain and confusion and struggle. Jesus when he told his disciples to pray he taught them to pray our father give us today our bread forgive us our transgressions lead us not into trials When you pray then, you're reminded that there are others in the world besides you, that life does not revolve around you. Baby boomers, or the me generation as it got called, when they pray they are dragged out of their self-righteousness. 
Generation X's, when we pray, we recoil in terror at our own rampant individualism. And when young people or those of the millennial generation pray, they're confronted by their consuming self-centeredness. Prayer isn't just hard then, like learning the piano is hard. Prayer is painful and offensive to us. It literally offends our self-sufficiency. That's why we don't pray. That's why it's hard to pray. When we pray, we're lifted out of our perspective and we are forced to reflect and think about life from God's point of view. We see the strength of the one who formed the mountains and kneaded the valleys with his knuckles. We gawk in terror at pure goodness, the pure goodness of the being who has never had an evil intention or a murky motive. When we pray, we are face to face with the one who invented color, imagined blue like a man makes up a story and who gave us the ability to appreciate beauty. That's who we come to when we pray. In the face of that kind of a God, our ego and our pride splutters. In the face of the one who hears and is near to every one of the 7.4 billion people in the world. That's prayer. That's why it's hard. But that's also why it's essential for us as human beings, as we looked at last week. You see, we dare not become so content and comfortable with who we are and how the world is that we don't pray. To become so and to not do so is our death. A while ago, I, I, I read something that Martin Luther King said. Again, I found it deeply troubling. This, basically, this morning is going to be an example of all the deeply troubling parts of my own life. And so he said this, in the end, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies but the silence of our friends. After all the name-calling and injustice and racism subsides, what will stay with us most of all, he said, is the silence of those who didn't come to our help, who didn't speak up for us, who didn't pray for us, who didn't stand with us. In Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, a town in ancient Greece, he ends his letter with a list of kind of thanks so-and-so and say hi to so-and-so, as he often does. And amongst them is, is quite an interesting one. A man named Epaphras, and what he says about Epaphras stands out. He says in Colossians 4, Epaphras, who was one of you, part of your church, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Prayers are struggle. Epaphras is struggling for these people. When we pray for others, we fight for them. We enter into their plight and experience. We try to see life through their eyes. That's what it means to learn to pray for those in need. In Acts chapter 12, when Peter, one of the leaders of the early church, gets imprisoned because he's a Christian, because he's talking about Jesus, it says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, I know from time to time when I share with various friends about struggles that I might be experiencing, it's always such an encouragement when a week or two later that person says to me or calls me to find out how I'm doing, how things are going. The encouragement that we can give one another, that, I can, that I've experienced from knowing that someone cares enough about me, about you, about us, to pray for us, that's something special. When I don't come from a Christian household, so when I first met a Christian and became a Christian, that 
Christian's mum said to me, oh, I've been praying for you. And at first, I was freaked out. I was like, what the heck? Like, I'm, you're praying for me. Why would you do that? But then the kind of the barriers melted as I realized you cared enough to pray. Let me tell you about a girl named Leah Sharibu. Sharibu. Uh, this young girl here is Leah. She's 15 years old. And around a year ago, she was kidnapped by Boku Haram, the Islamic extremist group at large in Nigeria. And recently, Boku Haram released a video of them killing a 25-year-old midwife who worked for the Red Cross. In the same video, the spokesperson for the terrorist group also threatens Leah's life if their demands aren't met. Now, on February 13th, Leah, along with 100 other girls, were kidnapped from their school. And the other 99 girls were released several months ago, but Leah refused to denounce Christ and give up her Christian faith. 15 years old, she had a chance to go free, but instead chose staying faithful to Jesus above her freedom. As one of the girls were released, Leah, knowing that she wasn't going to be released, scribbled a note for this girl to pass to her parents. And this is what it said. My mother, you should not be disturbed, she wrote. I know it's not easy missing me, but I want to assure you that I'm fine where I am. I am confident that one day I will see your face again. If not here, then at the bosom of our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the last unscripted message that Leah's mother has had from her in eight months. Someone I used to know would often say, some things are too terrible for words, aren't they? They are. Imagine that as a mum. They're too terrible for words, but they're not too terrible for prayer. Let's just pray for Leah. Father, we do. We, we pray that you would re- see her released, that you'd bring down the evils of groups like Boku Haram. That you would please, Lord, let Leah's mum and dad see her again. And we thank you for Leah's courage. Now, God, reward her for it, we pray. Amen. See, when we pray for... We pray for freedom for others. We pray for justice for the oppressed. It acts like a double punch. Firstly, it beats against our own selfishness and our own self-absorption. It beats that into a part that better resembles God's heart for people. But it also is a punch that deals a blow to the enemy. That changes things in this world. Peter was eventually released from prison after the church prayed for him. Laws have been passed as a result of prayer and Christians working for it. It's a double punch. We pray. It's a punch for ourselves and it's a punch for the enemy. It's a a one-two punch. But a lot of what I've been talking about in justice and prayer so far, it's out there, isn't it? It's, It's among the people unknown to us that we'll never meet. So I want to end, before we go into a time of response, I want to end by bringing things a little bit closer to home and talking about us, talking about you and me. We live live in enemy-occupied territory, in a world where the great enemy of mankind is out to devour and hold captive every one of us. We are fed lies about God and about ourselves and what God thinks about us. 
And we create for ourselves a sort of captivity of the soul that stops us living free, stops us being the people we want to do, be, stops us doing the things we want to do and embracing the destinies that God has for us. Several months ago, I was lying in bed and I said to Amy, my wife, I said, isn't it funny how silence always has a high-pitched ring to it? Because it does. Silence has always had this kind of weird high-pitched ring to it. You know, like that sound when you turn on a TV and the static comes from the TV. So I said to her, isn't it weird that silence sounds like that? Anyway, she shocked me by saying, no, it doesn't. You have tinnitus. (laughs) I thought, what? What are you talking about? It turns out I have tinnitus. I always have done, for as, least, as long as I can remember. I think it must be the sign of a misspent youth. I remember going to a nightclub once and my ears like thudding for days afterwards because it was so loud. But for me, it was a revelation. It sounds like amusing. But ever since then, I've really noticed it's really loud. This ringing's always really loud, and particularly when it's silent. I don't know what to do about it. I don't think you can. But it's interesting that for so long, I just thought that was normal. I just thought that was how life is. The universe has a ring to it. <laughs> I don't know. The activity of the enemy in many Christians' lives, in many of our lives, is a bit like that. Uh, we've put up with things for so long that we don't think it's weird. We can't imagine life any other way. You mean a whole day where I don't suffer from chronic anxieties? Really? I can't see that. I mean, a whole day where I don't like, beat up on myself? I mean, a whole day where I say yes to God and I don't recoil in terror at an idea of something that's different to me? I can't do that. We've become so familiar with some of the thoughts and ideas that hold us captive. We can't imagine a life without it. But Jesus' friend John writes to the church and he says, Listen, church, the reason the Son of God appeared or came was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus himself said, I've come so that you may have life and life in its fullest form. Jesus came to bring a deep and rich and overflowing joy to the human race. He's described as being a man anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions, which is a religious way of saying he was really happy. The images of people, uh, the images of God in people's minds of being this glum-faced, you know, killjoy are just odd. It's just a lie. But that's what Jesus came to do. And part of how we get free is by allowing Jesus to come and convince us of that. By praying. Prayer connects us with the God who comes to free us and teach us about ultimate reality teaches about things that we, we perhaps haven't thought about before or teaches us to see things in a way that we haven't thought of before. The Apostle Paul writes to a church in, in Corinth, in Greece. He says this, the way that we fight, the way that we fight the enemy's tactics, he says we do not wage war as the world does. See, the weapons that we fight with, they're not weapons of this world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. See, a stronghold is a repeated pattern of thought or behavior that doesn't bring you life and joy. 
A stronghold is something that's a part of your life that seems impenetrable to the joy and life that God brings. It holds out against God. But Jesus came to set people free, to bring justice and good news to the oppressed. He came to bring us, if you like, lungfuls of freedom. He wants us to know the joy and happiness that comes from that. The reason I know this, the reason I know that that's true, is because God, God's word, the Bible, says so. It's also because I've glimpsed it. I've seen it in people's lives. And in the past week, I think I've glimpsed some of it in my own life in a way that I hadn't done just a few days ago. And last week I made a comment that the church, this room, ought to be full of the broken and the needy in society. Because that's who Jesus came to call. If you're sophisticated and you're too clever for Christianity, God bless you. But Jesus said, I've come to call the sick and the needy, the hurting and the broken. So in this room, there should be plenty of us, then them. And it's funny that I made that comment almost as a throwaway comment last week. And I think in the last week, I've learned how true that is of me and myself, that I count myself in that number. And so I want to end today by, by telling you a bit more about the mess of the man that stands in front of you. And I've questioned the wisdom of this, but I feel it's important for us as a church because we don't want to be a group of people that just share testimonies of what God's done in our lives when they're over. We want to be a church that is honest enough to say, this is, this is me, this is where I am right now. And uh, I know I'm, I don't find self-disclosure too difficult, quite an open book. Um, so that's why I kind of question the wisdom of this, but I trust that in it there's something that's useful for people and that I can get through it. Um, we're all works in progress. I certainly am. The past few months have been really quite hard for me, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. For a while, I, I've felt a lot like I'm failing in lots of ways. I feel like for, for the past few months, I've felt like I'm destined to fail. I felt like the drawn out process for us as a church of purchasing a building has taken its toll. I feel like I've done everything I can to try to lead us well, to preach regularly, to try to see people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus. And I think for the past few months, I've just sat in a self-pity party of going, nothing's shifting, God. How long have we been doing this, God? It's just hard, and it's not happening like I hoped it would. Now, those, those things that I've, I'm, I've felt and experienced aren't unusual, of course. We all feel them in our various arenas, and they ought not to be a big problem. The problem, however, I think, is, is the issues in my own life that have been exposed as a result of those last few months. You know, if something bumps into a cup, liquid it comes out of it the bump doesn't create the liquid it just exposes the liquid you know your kids don't make you selfish they just expose it <laughs> expose your problems and i think for me through conversations i've had with some very kind people over the last few months who've who've just graciously pointed out to me character flaws of my own I think through conversations with people like that, I've become aware of areas of my life that I haven't given much attention to, but have been part of me for a long time, to the point that I think there's character flaws about me that I've been calling my personality and my destiny, 
in a way of saying to God, this is just who I am and I'm never going to change. And I've come to see that that's a lie, that Jesus has come to set us free from those sorts of things. Recently, something happened that helped bring to light some of the strongholds in my own life. Um, Several different things. I don't want to share too much, I suppose, to just kind of bore you with some details of just like, this isn't a therapy exercise for me. Hopefully, this is helpful for the church and for us. But the most noticeable one was two weeks ago. I was at home on a Sunday because I had a stomach bug. And so I I logged on to Eastbourne Kings, uh, where they do a live stream every Sunday. And one of the people who were leading the meeting, they, they announced and they celebrated that at the 9 o'clock service, four men had become Christians. Four men who didn't know Jesus had made a decision to live for Jesus. I became very angry when I heard that. I became very frustrated to the point that I had to turn it off. Because I thought, we're not. We, people aren't becoming Christians in Seaford. We haven't seen four men surrender their lives to Jesus and have massive life transformation go on. So I turned off the television. I turned off the internet. And it's something I've noticed that, but I notice I've becoming, become increasingly agitated over the past few months. If a video doesn't play properly, or if there's a typo in the words, or if someone says something they shouldn't, or if we sing a song that I don't like, that isn't in the way that I want it done, then I get angry. There's an agitation that grows. And those things aren't important, really. They're not, are they? You know that. But if your identity and significance comes from things being done well and people thinking highly of you, if your identity comes from being a successful church leader, then it hurts. And I'm telling you this, and I know how ugly this is in my heart. I'm just laying it out there. What's more, I know that broken people end up breaking people. I know that hurting people end up hurting people. And I don't want that for the church. I don't want that for us in this town. And so in the past week, God has started to bring freedom to me, partly by exposing a lot of the issues that I've had. I've seen that for a long time, comparison and envy has been a sin that I've kind of dwelt in for many, many years. And I've brushed it under the carpet because I've thought to myself, we all struggle with comparison issues, don't we? We all get envious from time to time. Of course we do, we're human. But for me, this is creating uh, habits and a part of a, a character formation that I'm not pleased with. Now, I'm a competitive person. Often it's a bit of a joke, isn't it? <laughs> He's such a competitive guy. Can't play Monopoly without throwing the table up if he, get, if he loses. Ha, ha, ha. So competitive. Now, that's all fun and that's all fine. But a major part of my competitiveness is a fight for significance. I need to beat you so that I'm not a loser. I need to beat you so that I matter. Because if I lose at this game, there's a chance that I'm not very important at all. I'm not very valuable at all. And it's toxic. Now, a couple of years ago, I was um, mentoring a guy. And um, we would meet together weekly and just kind of just pray through things that he was going through. And on one occasion, he kind of confessed to me that he had been thinking ba- badly about me and projecting a lot of stuff onto me. That he said, I realized all of the, a lot of the issues I had with my dad and how mean he was to me, I've just projected them onto you because you're a male authority figure in my life. And so he confessed that and uh, we made friends and it was, it was great. But I remember sitting there as he, as he said that, I thought, 
I could never do that. <laughs> I, I thought to myself, I could never do that with Graham, who's my boss, who's my authority figure, who's my surrogate father. I thought, well done for you, buddy. I'm never doing that. That scares the living daylights out of me. And so this last week, I found myself in Graham's office um, in a, just a puddle of tears, confessing to him how I have thought poorly of him because I've projected authority issues onto him. I'm uh, confessing to him how I've bristled against authority. I've not wanted to submit. I wanted to do my own thing, go my own way. And I said things to him. I said, look, the truth is, sitting here, I feel like you think I'm a weak man for crying. I feel ashamed for crying in front of you. you know, I, grew up, I grew up with parents who always told me, boys can cry, boys can cry. But it was always my mum that told me boys can cry. So hence, somewhere in my subconscious became this idea no, no, men don't cry. You don't express weakness. If you express weakness, it's a shameful thing for a man to do. So even now, when I cry, last week I was, uh, I was crying in front of my wife. There's been a lot of tears in the last week and a half. I'm grateful to God for what he's doing. Um, but I was crying in front of Amy, and she was, you know, she was comforting me, and I said, I feel desperately shameful that I'm crying in front of you. She said, why? I said, because it's weak, and I don't want to be weak. And so I realized how, much in, how deeply entrenched an idea like that has gone. How deeply entrenched envy and comparison has gone. And I need freedom from that. And by God's grace, last week I recognized some lies that I've been believing. And the thing is about deception, and the thing is about a lie, is it doesn't, you never know you're being deceived. That's why it's called deception. If you knew, it'd be, oh, I'm not deceived, because it's a lie. But when you realize that you've been deceived. You have to make a decision. You have to repent of the things that you've believed and you have to accept the truth. And the result of that has been new levels of joy and peace that I haven't felt for months. I'm not here by saying this is the cure for everything in the world and your problems. Of course, I'm not. I'm just, hear what I'm saying. Hear what, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying, for me, I've glimpsed something. I realized Jesus has come to set us free He's come to set me free from chronic envy and comparison that gets its identity from performance. That's my issue. I don't know what yours are, but I know that Jesus wants to set you free. This last week, I visited Eastbourne for the first Eastbourne, the church where we have King's um, uh, the kind of original center that planted us. I visited Eastbourne for the first time without feeling anger and envy at what they're doing. I mean, that for me is a big deal. I felt so light. I felt so happy. I know I've, I've got a long way to go, but I started to experience deep joy again in God's presence. And last night we had a men's prayer meeting. And I'll finish with this. And we talked, we talked about how this is an issue for us as men, comparing ourselves to one another, envying other people. I want their gift. I want to be like them. I don't want to be myself. I want to be in charge. I want to be powerful. I don't want to be weak. I don't want to experience shame at vulnerability. We talked about this as men. And as one, the men in the room were confessing, God, I don't want to be like this. We want to be men in this church who present a Christ-like version of masculinity. In the world, you see, masculinity is either toxic because it's aggressive and alpha-dominating, or masculinity in the world is presented as being, well, men are just lazy and they disengage. And I don't know, maybe there's something in that. Maybe there's something in the heart of man that tends towards either aggression and dominance or laziness and passivity. But in the church, 
as men, we were saying last night, we want to walk the middle road of trusting Christ, of submitting and being humble and serving, of giving for our sisters in the church an example of masculinity that's more Christ-like than it is worldly. We want that, but we know the only way it comes is through Jesus bringing freedom and justice and as a result, joy to the church. So those are some of my issues at the moment that I'm working through. And I take it that I'm not alone in this. And my invitation for us as a church is to say, come on, we've got to pursue a radical authenticity that's willing to sit for hours with people and pray for them that God would bring freedom and listen to them and hopefully bring some wisdom over time. So we're living in a consumer society that delegates as much as it can to experts. That's fine. We love experts. We need experts. If I went to the doctors, I want to see an expert. I don't want to see my friend just down the road or a buddy in the church if I've got an issue. We need experts. But the danger for us, church, is that we end up thinking we need experts for everything. Where for most things in life, what we need is just a brother or a sister in Christ to sit with us, to pray for us, to listen to us, to give us their time. Because We have the wonderful counselor in us, the Holy Spirit, who's come with the mission of Jesus to bring freedom to the world. And he can't bring freedom to the world until he brings freedom to the church. Because otherwise we just we're a group of captives going out trying to get other captives and say, hey, let's let's all just bask in our captivity. Broken people break people, hurting people hurt people. Let's allow Jesus to set us free, to heal us, to mend us, and let's be part of that journey together. Let me pray, and we'll get the band up, and we've got a good 15 minutes. We're just going to respond to God. If you're not a believer today, and you'd like to become a Christian, we say often, you can become a Christian just simply by saying, Jesus, teach me. I want to learn from you. I want to follow you. If you're a Christian, you know as I've been sitting there, some of the things that are alive for me, alive for you, I'd encourage you as we're singing, tell God, this is the lie that I've believed. Help me walk free. At the end of the service, you might want to hang, say to a friend, can we get some time just so I can sit and just share with you some of the lies that I've been believing and can I can ask that you pray for me for greater levels of freedom because Jesus has come to bring freedom to the church. I believe that and I certainly know how much I need that and I want to change. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word that you have come in the form of your son to set captives free. Oh Lord, I pray, I pray that we would be a group of people who don't speak destinies over ourselves that are out of line with the truth. I pray that you'd give us people who speak destinies over ourselves based on the truth. The truth is, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. The truth is, if you're in Christ, you're a holy one because you've been given Jesus' righteousness. The truth is, if you're in Christ then you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of love, peace, and a sound mind. Lord, where there's fear for many of us of what the future might hold, we fear, I suppose, all the wheels coming off the wagons of our lives, I pray that you'd help us to speak the destiny of Jesus over us. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd come and set us free from the lies of of the enemy, that we'd be a church who understands prayer's significance in bringing justice and joy to the world. Amen. Why don't we stand together?